Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Thank you, Tucker. Uh, we appreciate Tucker reading today because uh, his wife was supposed to read and she was not feeling too well, so he kind of pinch hit for us, which is a baseball reference for you baseball people. Um, I don't watch baseball, but I've heard that term, so hopefully I use it right. <laughs> um, uh, we, uh, we are diving, thanks Charlie. <laughs> we are diving in today uh, to what every commentary I read this past week said is the most difficult parable in all of Jesus' ministry uh, to interpret and understand. Uh, So it's going to be a lot of fun this morning. Um, And to make matters even more fun, I am jet-lagged because I was in Ireland with Steffi last week. She got to speak and preach, or not preach, I preach, she speaks, um, teach at a conference, and um, I got to tag along with her. We got back on Friday. I woke up at 3.30 this morning, so I am good to go. Um... Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, Before we get into all of that, I got a question for you as we kind of dive into this parable today. And that question is, when do you know that you are going to attend a party you've been invited to? So some of you, I know, you get the invitation in the mail, you get the evite in your email, you get the text, hey, party's happening, we want you there. And you're like the immediate yes, right? Like if there's a party there, if there's more than two people in a room, you want to be a part of that. You've got the FOMO, the fear of missing out. You are gonna be at that party. Anyone like that in the room, like party, you're there. Okay, a few people. You all are the extroverts. Yeah, yeah, extroverts are excited. All right, then how many of you, you get the invite and it's just like immediate no, like hard pass. If there's gonna be a lot of people there, I don't want to be there. If there are more than two people, I will not be one of them. And so you're just like, I'm out. I don't like parties, I don't wanna go. Anyone there? Okay, few people. Those are the introverts. They're a little like like more hesitant to raise their hands. Um, How many of you do this? You get the invite and you're like, I really wanna go, but I don't know who's gonna be there. So I gotta like wait and watch the invite and see. And the, the problem with that plan is that everybody has that plan, right? So no one responds and no one goes to the party. And then we also have people I feel like who, who just kind of sit in that firm maybe camp where, where they say like, yeah, I'll go. I'm gonna check the box, yes. But in my heart of hearts, it's just like a really firm maybe. I'm going to see what plans I have that day. I'm going to see if the the lawn needs to be mowed. I'm going to see if I'd rather watch Netflix that night. Like, I'm just not going to go all the way and commit. Anyone in that camp, like, you just have to wait. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, everyone's like, yeah, that's me. I just, I got to keep my options open. I don't know what I want to do. Um, for Steffi and I, this is uh, funny for a small groups pastor to say, uh, but one of the places that I, felt, I think we've felt that at times, like, like have you ever felt that moment where you were actually really excited for the party and then the day of the party comes and you're like, oh, do we have to go tonight? Like, I don't wanna be at the party. I would rather just stay home. And I heard from that response, a lot of you feel that way, right? Like, what is that? Like you're looking at at like your your roommate or your spouse or whoever and you're like, man, could we just like pretend we're sick tonight and like not have to go? Anyone, and I'm sure you've never done that, but you've thought about it, right? Like we all have this feeling for some reason. We're invited to a party, we wanna go, we're excited for the party, and then it comes and we're like, ugh, not sure I wanna be there. 
For Steffi and I, that space is often small group, which is a funny thing for a small group's pastor to say. We host a small group. It's with all of our friends, the people we love, and every day small group would come, we would be like, oh, do we have to do this again? Like, do we have to get our house all clean? And then it would be this huge fight about who made a bigger mess in the house that week, and we'd have to run and get snacks, and we'd do the whole thing, and then it would be like the moment before people would arrive, and we would just be like catching our breaths, trying to resolve our fight or pretend like we'd resolved our fight before people walked through the door right? I'm, yeah, you guys get it. And then the, the funniest thing would happen, though, is, is we would get all of these people that we love in a room. We'd eat snacks. We'd have good conversation. We'd open the Bible, and, and we loved it, and we were so glad we did it. And, and in fact, one time, we just, like, named that dynamic with our group, and it turned out every single person in our group felt the exact same way and was like, yeah, we never want to come, but we're always glad we did. Which if that's not a great like tagline for small groups, I don't know what is, right? Like, and hey, small group signups are starting in just a couple of weeks, so it's not too late. Tagline, you'll never want to go, but you'll always be glad that you did. I don't know how else to sell it to you. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> we've, we've all, I don't know if it's a jet lag or what, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing, all, we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> we've all had that moment though, right? And I think sometimes, as a millennial, I feel that, that millennials sometimes get blamed for that. Like, oh, you never want to commit. But I don't think it's a millennial problem. I, I think it's just like a human problem. And the reason why I think that is because all of you who are not all millennials just agreed with about everything I just said. But Jesus also told a story with that at the center of it 2,000 years ago. He told a story of a bunch of people who were invited to a party, who said they would go to the party, who accepted the invitation. And then when it came time to actually show up, no one wanted to go. What is that? Like, what keeps us from that type of space and that kind of party? And so that's where we're going today. And like I said, this parable... Uh, four or five different commentaries, people that are like really gifted scholars in the New Testament and in the Gospels, and in the parables specifically said this is one of the hardest parables for us to understand. And the reason why is because you read this parable and it is incredibly harsh. It's very intense. It's violent. And it doesn't really sound like a lot of the parables we're used to interacting with. So if you think of like some of the most popular parables that we know, like think of the prodigal son, right? It's a story of a son who, who abandons his father, runs away from home, wants to do his own thing, squanders his wealth, and then comes back to his father and what happens? The father receives him with open arms. He runs to him while he's still a far way off. And we just, ah, oh, this compassion and grace and the story of God's goodness and mercy it's the kind of story that gives us the warm fuzzies. Or you think of the Good Samaritan, and, and it's a story of someone who gets beat up, and, and a, the least likely hero steps forward and takes care of this person, shows him mercy and compassion and tenderness and takes care of his enemy. And we see this story of mercy and grace, and, and we love those stories. And then you get to this story, and it's violent, and there's judgment, and we're not quite sure what Jesus is talking about. And it leaves us in this space of tension where we're not quite sure if the parable is for us and, and if it is, what it might mean for what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live life in the kingdom. 
And so what I would like to do today is take a little bit of time, walk through the stories we've been doing in this series on the parables, try to pull some context out so we can understand the story a little better. And then after we've done that, see if there's maybe a few things that we can use to make sense of what this parable is supposed to mean for us today. Does that sound good? You with me? Awesome. Last night someone just said, sure. So that was great. They were like... Sure, why not? I guess I'm here. So it was awesome. <laughs> and to be honest, it doesn't really matter what you say. We're still going to go there. So, <laughs> all right. So let's start Matthew chapter 22 in verses 1 going through 14. If you will follow along with me. Jesus spoke to them again in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, right off the bat, as we've been jumping into the parables, one of the most important questions we have to ask every time we come to a parable is, is who is Jesus telling the parable to, right? Because understanding the audience in which Jesus spoke this story, who he told this story to, is critical in understanding what the parable is about. But this doesn't really help us, because all it tells us is Jesus spoke to them. Like, who is them? Anyone have any ideas? I heard a bunch of mumbling, but I couldn't quite make out what the answer was. Shout it out if you think you know it. What? All of us. Okay, yeah, it could be all of us. Pharisees. Pharisees, that's right, Charlie. Nailed it. Yeah, so in this story, in chapter 22... We're in the middle of Holy Week. So starting in chapter 21, Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everyone has recognized that he's the Messiah. They're shouting Hosanna. They're laying down their cloaks and palm branches. They're praising him as the king. And Jesus goes to the temple and he sees what's happening in the temple and the way people are using the space of God to make profit for themselves. And they've turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so Jesus gets angry. He overturns their entire system and religious worship in this moment. And then he goes back to the temple the next day, which you have to admire the courage of Jesus. Like he's just offended all the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And he's like, yeah, I'll go back to the scene of the crime. And he goes there, and he immediately gets in this debate with all of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, the, the pastors and the priests, if you will. And he gets in a debate with them because they're, they're questioning his authority. And they say, who are you to tell us about the kingdom of God? Who are you to tell us what the kingdom of God is like? Because the way Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God didn't align with their views and their understanding of what God was doing with the kingdom. He was preaching the kingdom of God to sex workers and, and, and prostitutes and people who were uh, extorting people for money. And he, all of the, the, the corrupt people of his day, Jesus was like, you are welcome in the kingdom. And the religious leaders, they couldn't stomach it. And so Jesus in that space tells this parable to those people. And I think what we have to recognize is, is he's speaking to the people who are really good at doing the religious stuff. He's speaking to the people who are really good at showing up to worship, and they're really good at, at checking off the list of everything that they're supposed to do to please and honor God. That's who he's addressing, which many of us in this room fall into that category. So he's speaking to this group of people, and he says, the kingdom of God 
is like a wedding feast. And there are two important things about that. One is throughout the series, we've known over and over and over again the kingdom of God comes up in these parables because the parables are intended to help us understand and know what the kingdom of God is like. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? What are the values of the king? And so Jesus is trying to paint a picture for them about what the kingdom of God is like. And he tells them that it's like a wedding feast a banquet that a king is throwing for his son on his wedding day. And this is not just some like idea Jesus pulled out of nowhere that he thought was a nice illustration to try to make sense of the kingdom of God. It's actually a thread that's woven all throughout the Old Testament where prophets and priests would say that that when the Messiah comes, it's gonna be like the most glorious, most exquisite banquet you have ever seen. In fact, you can see in Isaiah 25 how they describe this banquet and what it would look like when the Messiah came. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations, meaning he'll reveal himself to all people and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This will happen. See, it's this beautiful picture we have throughout the Old Testament that that when the Messiah comes, this incredible feast, the greatest feast you could ever imagine is what the kingdom is going to be like. And it's something that Jesus picks up on in this parable and in other stories. In fact, when Jesus performs miracles, like turns the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan, it's echoing this kind of thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what Jesus is really saying in this parable, he's talking to these religious people and he's saying, hey, that thing that you've been waiting for hundreds of years for, that that feast, that wedding banquet, that, that thing that you've been aching and longing for, it is here. I'm bringing it to you. I am the Messiah, the one who is bringing it to you. But some of you are refusing to come. You don't want to be a part of the kingdom. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? What is keeping people from coming to the kingdom? And so Jesus continues the story. And he says that then he sent some servants and said, tell those who have been invited, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business, The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. That escalated really quickly, didn't it? (laughs) Like, it just went from, hey, come to a party, to like, let's kill them. Like, what is going on in this story? Like, I don't know about you, but even a party I don't want to go to, I'm not like ripping up the invitation or like trying to murder the person who sent the invite to me. Like, this is a very intense reaction. And what we have to understand is this escalation that's happening in this story. It's not just because they don't want to go to a party and so they have this really strong reaction. What we miss is that a lot of times if we don't go to a party or a wedding, it's for good reason. Someone got sick or we had something come up or whatever. But that's not what's going on in this story at all. The refusal to come to the party is not just, oh, I have better things to do. 
that the refusal to come to the party is, is a, a, an essentially a refusal to acknowledge the king. It's a, a failure to report and give allegiance to the king. It's, it's tying them out to, to like insurrection and rebellion and saying, we're, we're not gonna acknowledge you or your son. We don't want a part of your wedding feast. We're not gonna go. We're refusing to acknowledge you as our king. And, and that insurrection, that rebellion spills over into violence. And they step forward and they kill the servants of the king. So it's not just that people don't want to go to a party. They're they're actually rebelling against the kingdom, which helps a little bit, not much, but a little bit when we read the next part of the story. Because the king was enraged, and he sent his army, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city, which feels like really intense. But if you think about it in the context of, of the story, maybe not really. If we came across this story in any other circumstances, and you think about a king who's, who's throwing a party for his son and people are, are, you know, rebelling against them, killing his servants, creating chaos and madness, of course the king would step in and prevent things from getting out of hand. Of course the king would step in and restore order. It, it makes sense, but when we think of this story in light of what Jesus is saying, that this is what the kingdom of God is like, that this is what the king of the kingdom is like, it's a little more unsettling, isn't it? Like this idea that, that God would take vengeance on the people who have rebelled against him, that he would murder the murderers and destroy the city. Like it, last time I checked, God's not a part of like the expendables. Like it feels so out of character for the God that says he's slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. It feels a little incongruent with some of the stories Jesus tells us. And Jesus kind of just leaves us in that tension. And if you're feeling that tension today, I want you to imagine Jesus on the temple steps telling this story to the religious leaders of his day. Because what he's basically saying in this story is, hey, the kingdom is here, I'm bringing it, it's arriving, you're missing it, and God is angry. You are rebelling against God, and he is going to have punishment for you. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the tension in that context? Jesus has just destroyed their temple, and now he's saying that God is coming for you too. I mean, it's just like, so much tension in this text and in this story that Jesus has with these people. And then he goes on. He doesn't really resolve that tension, and he just moves forward, and he says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, for those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Which we like this part of the story. Like, go out and find anyone you can. Everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome at my banquet. The the people who didn't want to come, they didn't really deserve it. I will take anyone. There is no prerequisite. There is no sort of thing you have to pass, good, bad, it doesn't matter. You are all welcome at the feast of the king. Rich, poor, doesn't matter ethnicity, no like qualifications. Everyone is invited and welcomed. 
It sounds like a really happy ending to the story, except for the people whose city was destroyed and they were like slaughtered. But other than that, it's a good ending. Except Jesus continues and he doesn't leave us with a good ending. And he says this, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but that feels like an overreaction, right? Like, have you ever shown up to a party and immediately realized that you were underdressed? Like, you missed the dress code? Like, like you show up at a black tie event and you're wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops and you're like, whoops, missed the memo on that one. And you, what happens? Usually someone's like, hey, it's okay, no worries. Like, it's all right. Like, we'll work it out. Not in this story. The king literally ties him up and throws him into the bad place for not having the correct attire at a wedding. Like, what is going on? This feels like so extreme. And to be honest, all of the commentaries, all of the scholars, all of the people I read, they're, they're not quite sure. They have a couple of different ideas about what might be going on historically in this like, moment with this poor man who didn't dress appropriately for the wedding. And here's one option. One option is that in that day, when a king threw a feast and a wedding banquet, one of the traditions that they would do is that as you came into the feast, the king would basically open his wardrobe, all of his best garments, all of his clothing, everything that he had available would be available to all the people who came to the wedding. And so for a day, you got to dress like royalty at the wedding. And essentially what's happening in this story, if that's the case, is that this man is, is refusing the generosity of the king. He's refusing to conform to the will of the king. He's more than willing to accept the invitation to the party, but he doesn't want to conform to the king's expectations of how he engages with the party. The second option is, is not really much different than the first, but they say historically there's not a lot of evidence that kings would actually give everyone royal garbs for the day. And so the, the essential thought of this parable is that this person had plenty of time to dress for the, the wedding. He had plenty of time to show up in the proper attire and show up in the way that he was supposed to. And he simply refused. He, he knew he was supposed to come and honor the king and his son and chose to wear his cargo shorts and his flip-flops instead as a sign of disrespect to the king. And whichever explanation you like better, it really leaves us in the same place. That this man isn't just showing up to a wedding and, and a little underdressed. He, he's actually continuing the act of rebellion. He's more than willing to accept the invitation, but he's not willing to conform to the expectations of the king. And, and I think what Jesus is maybe getting at in this is that dichotomy of the gospel that I think we've all felt at times. The invitation is for everyone. Anyone is welcome to attend the wedding feast. Anyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. And yet, once you are in the kingdom of God, there are expectations about how you engage with the king. Essentially, I think what Jesus is saying in this moment is that the, the king still has standards. He still has expectations for how his subjects will behave in his kingdom. 
And, and while any are welcome, those who, who refuse to comply with his will, refuse to acknowledge his sovereignty, there will be consequences for them. You see, I think we love the part of the story where everyone's invited and everyone's welcome in. We, we all love the inclusive nature of an open-ended invitation to anyone who's willing to accept it. But the, the invitation that Jesus has is a little bit different for us than that. The invitation Jesus has is, yes, anyone is welcome. But if you come into the kingdom, there's an expectation that change will take place. See, see, God's RSVP invitation, it, it will find you anywhere. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what your past is. Everyone is welcome. But while God finds us wherever we are at, he doesn't leave us wherever he found us. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus all the time. When, when a blind person comes to Jesus and asks to be healed, Jesus doesn't say, well, hey, you're welcome in the kingdom, but I can't really do anything for you about that blind thing. Right, right? He heals them, and they wouldn't expect anything less from the king of the kingdom. When the lame come, Jesus heals them. And it's the same when, when the sinners and the prostitutes and the sex workers come to him. What does Jesus say? He says, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Of course you're welcome here, but you have to come and follow me. And it's that dichotomy of the gospel that I think Jesus is getting at in this, that it's an open invitation. The invitation of Jesus is one where everyone is welcome. Everyone has a seat at the table but there's still an expectation of what our manners look like in that space. And so then Jesus summarizes the parable with these words, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And so just kind of as a, a summary, Jesus is talking to the religious elite, the people who, who are frustrated with Jesus because his expectations of what the kingdom is supposed to look like don't match their own. And so he comes to them and he says, hey, it is here. The kingdom has arrived. The wedding banquet is ready. You are missing it. You are missing out because you are refusing to acknowledge that I am the Messiah, that I am king. And there are consequences for that choice. And then he says that there's even some of you who you think you have made it in, but you're still missing it. And so what do we do with that parable? What do we do with Jesus trying to tell them and us about the nature of this kingdom where, where it's quite possible that, that we are missing its arrival, we are missing it in our midst? I think one of the things that Jesus is trying to tell us about the nature of God's kingdom, and we've already covered this a little bit, but the nature of God's kingdom, it's a place where everyone is invited to the banquet. It, Jesus is going out of his way in this story to make that abundantly clear. He uses the verb invitation, invite, over five times. In five different ways, he's trying to say all are invited. The invitation is open. Anyone is welcome to come into the kingdom. Jesus is trying to get across in this parable to the, to the religious leaders of his day that, that God is not going to invite the good and snub the bad, which gets at the very heart of why they're feeling offended. 
Because Jesus has gone around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and he's invited people to an actual table and had an actual banquet with sinners and tax collectors and sex workers and people who were never supposed to be allowed into the kingdom. See, I think oftentimes we think the offense of the gospel is who it keeps out. People are offended because we tell them they can't come in. But Jesus, when he preaches the good news of the gospel, it seems like the people who are most offended is the people who Jesus who are offended because of who Jesus says is allowed to come in. All of the people who are never supposed to get an invitation, Jesus welcomes with open arms and says, you can have a seat at my table. I think the good news of the parable is that, that God's invitation, the invitation for the kingdom of God will find us wherever we're at. It's for the bitter and the broken, the courageous and the coward. It's for the villain and the victim. And that's good news. But it makes the response to that news a little confusing, doesn't it? Because who doesn't want to go to a party where everyone is welcome, where everyone is invited? Well, actually, quite a lot of us, if you think about it. Like, if you get invited to a party and you know the, the person that annoys you most in the world is going, do you want to go? Probably not, right? Like, that's why we all check the invitation list before. That's why we do that. You see, if we know the people that we dislike, if we know the people that we don't want to be around are going to the party, then we don't want to be there. And I think that's the second thing that Jesus is trying to make clear about this parable, is that while everyone's invited, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is a place where not everyone is going to want to accept that invitation, not because of the nature of the kingdom of God and who God is, but because of who else is there. You see, the religious leaders, they thought there was a certain standard that people had to live to. They thought there were certain boxes that needed to be checked for people to be welcome, and Jesus is shattering their entire system and saying anyone and everyone is welcome, and that means that some people don't want to go and to be there. I think one of the questions for us that we have to ask for ourselves is, who don't we want at the table? Are there certain groups of people that, that we think shouldn't be invited, that, that should be excluded? Because those groups of people, whoever they may be, and we could list a lot of different ways people identify themselves. If they're allowed in, do you want to go and join the wedding feast? See, the warning in this parable seems to be that when we understand the nature of the kingdom and its inclusivity and who Jesus allows into the banquet, there are some of us who won't want to be there and who will reject the invitation. And that's, that's the crisis of the parable. That's the kingdom crisis that Jesus puts us in, is will we miss the invitation to God's kingdom? That will we reject the invitation? And it appears to me in this parable that there are three ways that that rejection of the invitation might happen. And I, I'm going to try to use the word seems a lot because not a lot of people agree, but this is what it seems like to me is the best answer for what's happening in this parable. First, 
is that some reject the invitation of the kingdom because they're just openly hostile to the king and the kingdom. They refuse to give allegiance to the king. They want nothing to do with the king. When they see the king of the kingdom and they understand his rule, his will, his reign, they'd rather go their own way. And so they live in open rebellion and refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king. And the second way it seems like some people miss out on the kingdom is that they refuse and reject the invitation because they're too preoccupied with their life, right? You see that in the few people who are like, well, actually, I've got this field I've got to go take care of. I've got this business I've got to see to. And it seems like one of the things Jesus is getting at is that there's some people who are missing out on the kingdom because they're so preoccupied with what is going on in this world, in this time, that they're missing out on the kingdom of God. And I've got to admit to you that that, that that feels like my life sometimes. I, I think for, for people in this camp, it, it's that Jesus is just additive to your life. That he's not primary. He's not the, the sole focus of your life. You've got a lot of stuff going on. You've got to get your kids to practice and to school. You've got to make sure you make the business deal happen. You've got to make sure that, that your marriage is strong. You've got to do all the things that we've been told are important to do. And if we can just sprinkle a little Jesus into those places, and if we can kind of work him into the mix, then that will be good enough. And what Jesus seems to be saying is, is that's actually not enough. That, that we don't get to engage with the king of the kingdom on our own terms, but on his terms. And I don't know about you, but the times in my life where I am so busy with my life and so self-consumed with finding my own fulfillment, like, there's no worse feeling I think that I have in my life than when, when I am so busy, I don't have time or space for God to break in to my life. When, when I don't have time for the presence of God, when I don't have time to experience life in the kingdom with him, because I've got stuff to do. I've got things that are important, and I'll get to the invitation someday. I think some of us are missing life in the kingdom of God because we've said yes to the invitation, but we've refused to actually live in the kingdom. We've refused to come. And then thirdly, I think there might be some of us that are in the feast. We are attending the banquet, and we're not wearing the right clothes. Which really, when you get at the heart of this parable, this is the, the most dire warning. This is the most important part to, to pay attention to because it's the people who think they've made it in, they think they're good, are the ones who actually end up getting thrown out. And so the question we have to ask is, is okay, if the person who thinks they're in gets thrown out because they're not wearing the right garments, then what is the garment that I'm supposed to, to, to have? What is it that I'm supposed to do? What is the thing that I need to make sure that I am good, right? Like that's the question the parable forces us to ask. And, and I think the answer is not quite what we expect, because what I, I think what we expect is then, okay, give me the list. Make sure that I know all the things that I'm supposed to do to make sure that when I'm at the feast, I know like not to put my elbows on the table. I know when to like pass the stuff to the left or to the right. I know all the rules. 
Because we're so good at making rules for the kingdom of God. We're so good at telling ourselves that we've got it together. We're so good at saying, okay, I showed up to church. I made sure to pray. I didn't yell at my kids. I didn't cuss. I didn't do all the things that I'm not supposed to do. I tithed. I gave. And we've got these holes. The problem with that is that it's the exact same thing that the religious leaders who Jesus is talking to were so good at. They were so good at making the list. And Jesus is trying to tear that down. So if it's not that, if it's not all the stuff we're supposed to do to be in the kingdom, then what is it? It seems like to me, when you examine the New Testament, and when you look, as particularly in the Gospel of Matthew where this parable is told, that there are a few places where Jesus calls into question our faith, and he says you need to examine your life and examine your faith to know whether or not you're understanding the kingdom of God. And the test always comes down to one thing. Do you show mercy and grace like the king? And so just a, a few quick examples of where I think we see this, and I can't even go through all of the ones in the New Testament that point to this, but, but for instance, Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that we will be known by our fruit in how we treat others. In Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the whole point of the parable is that we should show mercy to others as we have received ourselves. If you look in the story of the prodigal son, who's the one who's left out of the banquet feast? The older brother who doesn't think the, other one, the younger one deserved to be there. See, there's this theme running throughout the New Testament. Anytime Jesus calls us to examine our faith and calls us to question, are you getting it? It's not a list of things that we're supposed to do. It's are you showing mercy and grace as you have been shown? And if you're not, watch out. You're missing it. I think to me that makes most sense of the context and what Jesus is saying in this moment to the religious leaders. He's saying you're missing it. It's right in front of you. And because you think certain people shouldn't be allowed to come, you're missing out. See, I, I don't think what Jesus is saying in this parable is you have to earn your way into the feast. There's a bunch of stuff you have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's an open invitation to everyone. But the tension he leaves us in is if you have been invited, if you have accepted that invitation, are you willing to allow anyone else into the kingdom as well? Or do you think certain people should be excluded? And yes, once they come in, they'll have to change too, just like you did. But that's not where the gospel starts. That's not where the kingdom of heaven begins. And so I wonder if maybe in this parable that's a little harsh and a lot violent, if maybe Jesus is trying to use this kind of intense language to wake us up to the possibility that the kingdom of heaven is better than anything we ever expected because it's not trying to meet our expectations. 
Like what if in this parable Jesus is trying to say the kingdom of heaven, the gates have been thrown wide open. Anyone is welcome to come. But you will miss it if you think that certain people are not allowed in as well. You will miss it if you don't turn around and show that same type of generous grace and mercy as you have been shown. I think that's the tension that Jesus leaves us in with this parable. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, there are some moments in Scripture that leave us a little more uncomfortable a little more gray than black and white than we might like. God, there are some times when, when answers seem hard to come by, when the, the truth of your scripture leaves us in a place where we have to, to, to do some examination, to look at our lives and, and to ask, am I missing it? Is there some place in my life where I am not understanding the kingdom of heaven? God, those reasons for why we might be missing it can be as numerous as the, the people in this room or the people watching and joining us online. So God, I, I pray in this moment, your spirit would speak to each one of us. God, if there are places in our lives where we are missing the kingdom of God, where we have missed the good news, God, if there are places where, where we feel like the invitation is not meant for us, God, may you reveal that to us. God, if there are certain people that we feel like should not be welcomed within the kingdom of God, that, that our expectation is they change first before they can enter, God, may you reveal those spaces to us as well. God, may we believe the good news that all are invited, and that means us. God, may that good news churn within us and cause us to invite others to the wedding feast as well. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.